0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, after the 20-year deployment of international forces to Afghanistan, we ask
1: what is left now of the legacy on women's rights? It's it's unbelievable, to be honest, to, to see the decades of sacrifice, achievements, the golden years where women had. It's been just overnight change from a paradise to the hell it's the
0: news they've been waiting for the tanks are coming to ukraine but when
2: the key now is speed and volume the speed of training our military
3: the speed of supplying tanks to ukraine
0: and we hear from the filmmaker who's had the run of the aircraft carrier hms queen elizabeth
3: so it's very important that i go in there on their terms not my terms i have to earn my place
0: So much to talk about this week. And as ever, Michael Clark, Professor of Defence Studies, is here. Mike, it's been a big week for Ukraine. Could the
2: tanks be the turning point? Uh, Well, they might be. Uh, There aren't many weapons that really are sort of game changers. Everybody talks about, is this a game changer? And the the Leopard 2 tanks, if that's what we're going to see now in numbers, can be a game changer on the ground if they use correctly, if they use properly with all the other things that they need to be part of for an armoured brigade. Um, But that that could be a game changer on the ground. But the politics of this war um, will not be, will not resume, as it were, until the next round of fighting has taken place. So for the next few months, it's nothing but fighting. Um, Mm. And in that respect, yes, the tanks will make a difference if they get there in numbers and are properly used.
0: Mike, look forward to talking to you through the developments later with Dr Marina Mirren from King's College London. But first, part of the legacy of the UK's 20-year deployment to Afghanistan was the dramatic improvement in human and particularly women's rights.
4: I think the improvements in education in Helmand had been pretty much immeasurable, um, whereas you didn't have... To- girls in school in 2001. We've now got over 30,000 girls who are receiving an education. They're going to be able to join the workforce. They're going to be able to educate their own children. They're going to have made better decisions about their own health care.
0: That was Sarah Montgomery, the Department for International Development Senior Representative in Helmand, speaking in 2013. But when the last international forces left in 2021 and the Taliban seized control, those hard-won rights began to crumble. After the age of nine, girls are banned from schools, women from universities, and both women and girls can't go to parks or gyms, nor are they allowed to work for NGOs or most other kinds of employment. A UN delegation has just been in the country to challenge the authorities over the abuse of women's rights. And on her departure from the country, Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed wrote, I strongly believe that with determination in solidarity with Afghan women and girls, we can recover their rights to education and work. Shukriya Barakzai is a former member of the Afghan parliament who fled the country when the Taliban took over. And Lady Caroline Richards, who's married to a former chief of defense staff, set up the Afghan Appeal Fund in 2005 to build schools and educate Afghan children. Welcome to both of you. Shukriya Barakzai, the world you knew changed forever when Kabul fell to the Taliban. Can you describe the life you had before and how it simply ceased to be.
1: It's, it's unbelievable, to be honest, to see the decades of sacrifice, achievements, the golden years where women had. It's been just overnight change from a paradise to the hell. Uh, when I'm turning my face and see, it's its unbelievable to believe and see women as ministers, as ambassador, as members of parliament, and the millions of kids were the school, but right now there's a, no single woman and the formal structure as a decision maker with the de facto authority. It's sad to hear, formally, zero women or girls are allowed to be educated. It's, it's a dramatic change, which has happened just overnight, where I feel we've been betrayed badly not by foreigner, but also by our own leaders. It's remind me the sacrifice of those lives, men and women, with uniform, without uniform, Afghan, non-Afghan, in Afghanistan.
0: And Shukriya, as you say, things changed overnight. And for you personally, as somebody who was a person of influence, someone who critica- criti- criticized the Taliban and was in parliament, your life was immediately in danger and you had to get out.
1: Yes, before they took over the power, I, my life was in danger because in 2014, they, uh, they had a suicide on me. They was uh, Even three days before the uh, collapse of uh, Kabul, I was been target uh, for them. Uh, but when they, they took over power, I was just at the airport. And I couldn't believe everything was just happening in front of my eyes.
0: Lady Richards, your aim was to dramatically improve the futures of children when you set up the Afghan Appeal Fund. What motivated you and and how far did you get?
5: Well, we just felt we could do a little, actually. And um, it it snowballed. I think there's a great shock when your husband deploys. And I wanted to know more about Afghanistan. And we soon realized there was enormous thirst For education and a a great lack of schools, we would get people asking us, please build a school in our village and working through different agencies. We slowly built several schools around the country, uh, ending up in Helmand province, which had always been an aim of mine.
0: So it was the deployment of your husband, Lord Richards, that really motivated you to get started and take a real interest. But how easy was it to, to do the work you did?
5: We realised we weren't allowed to go to Afghanistan, so we had to find trusted friends and different agencies already working. People like Sandy Gaul, who was already working and an expert in Afghanistan. And we were helped by ISAF themselves.
0: And in trying to get those schools going and in running those schools in Afghanistan, how difficult was it at that time to get the Taliban to agree to girls being educated?
5: Well, we were lucky enough to be working with Dr. Mohammed Karoti, who was brought up in Helmand Province. He was called to speak to the Taliban, and this gave us a very interesting understanding. And for instance, when he sat down and spoke to them, he said to the Taliban, if your wife is ill, would you have a male doctor or a female doctor in your house? And of course, the answer is crystal clear that they would only allow a female doctor in their house. And it was by those kind of conversations that um, I believe Mohammed brought the Taliban round in Helmand Province. Obviously, the
0: Afghan Appeal Fund is not running at the moment for various reasons, but now uh, charities cannot be run or have any involvement from women in Afghanistan. How does that make you feel about the current situation? I'm afraid
5: I do blame the, the United States and Britain for pulling out so dramatically. But we work with a doctor in Helmand province and... He is absolutely certain that it will come right uh, because uh, we've had to work with the Taliban for many years in Helmand, and he has he had he has met with the Taliban. We have Taliban children in our school, and we have had we decided the right course of action was obviously to work in a, in a way of segregating boys and girls in a way that they asked and it's and it proved successful And what's happened to those schools that school is still thriving i th- the as far as my, my last just before christmas we heard that the, the girls the younger girls are still going and they're being taught by older girls
0: And Shukriya, I quoted the UN Deputy Secretary General earlier, who, having been to Afghanistan in the last few days, expressed her confidence that women can regain
1: their rights to education and work. Do you share that optimism? Uh, Not at all. I'm sorry to say. I'm a very realistic person. I'm not optimistic. I was a diplomat, not anymore. I have to say what is the truth. If, if I see the international messages uh, from the beginning, first six months, it was an inclusive government. And later on, the that message uh, changed to uh, uh, respecting uh, women's rights. And that was the demand of international community from Taliban. And later on, just the education for girls. And nowadays, it's just letting female employees for non-governmental organizations.
0: Lady Richards, I mentioned earlier about women's rights being part of the legacy of the presence of British forces in Afghanistan. And we know your husband commanded the International Security Assistance Force there. How important is it to you that those rights are won back by women? And do you think the UK should be doing more?
5: Well, it is, it's is—it's vital, but I, I think we have we've got to give the Taliban time and we've got to negotiate carefully and think of um in the long term because Shukri paints a very bleak picture but I think you've you've got to find ways to negotiate and maybe incentives i mean there, there's huge funds tied up in america um and i would think with careful patient negotiation i i can only pray that things will slowly uh, get better Lady
0: Richards and Shukriya Baraksai speaking to me earlier. Well, the all-party parliamentary group for Afghan women and girls was launched in the UK at the end of November. Colonel Rosie Stone is part of the secretariat for the group. She spent time in Helmand province with the UK military between 2010 and 2013. She told me about what she now does for the group.
4: It's early days for the, uh, for the parliamentary group. Um, there are four key themes that the... Uh Uh, officers are working on and uh, top of the list at the moment clearly is humanitarian aid in country but uh, also looking at asylum routes out of Afghanistan through those third countries like Pakistan where it can be equally as dangerous and there are long delays. Uh, Part of it is focusing on uh, resettlement uh, here in the UK but, but elsewhere. And, and working with the, the Home Office on that side of things. So there is plenty to do, and, and um, the officers are uh, very much dedicated to making sure that um, w- with the understandable uh, focus on, on Ukraine and the situation in Ukraine at the moment, that Afghan women and girls and, and their current plight and, and that deterioration in their situation is not forgotten.
0: And what kind of cases he coming across?
4: So I got involved in uh, identifying and helping to evacuate people. And some of them are still trapped effectively in Pakistan, but I'm still in contact with a wide network of people who are based in third countries, some within Afghanistan and some here within the UK. And they're all saying the same thing. The situation for everybody, life is hard for everybody. Currently it's minus 25 in some places within Afghanistan. Environmentally, it's tough. There is health and food insecurity. Uh, In Kabul itself, they're getting one hour of electricity in every 24 to 25 hours. So over 25, uh, over a day, uh, they're only getting access to electricity for one hour. Uh, Even basic human rights have been removed. And I think the the plight of women and girls has been very much highlighted uh, and is probably the worst globally at the moment in terms of access to education and and now most recently enabling um, the access to humanitarian aid right down to the ground.
0: And you talk, uh, Colonel Stone, about uh, this point, the turning point in 2021 when the Taliban took over. Ahead of that, uh, during that 20-year deployment to Afghanistan, how did things change for women in Afghanistan?
4: Well, the original reason for going into Afghanistan was not specifically for, for women, peace and security. Um, and I, I won't get into the details of, of how and why we ended there. The interesting thing was that after 20 years, you only realise the significant impact of that period had when everything was re- was started to be removed. So despite the fact there was this discussion around the Taliban had changed, that they would enable this, that and the other, they wouldn't put things back to where they had been. What I'm hearing is not only have they been put back to where they were uh, back in the darker days, but it's, it's actually getting worse.
0: And as somebody who has served in Afghanistan herself, how a greater responsibility did you feel at the time and do you feel now for those women?
4: I was very impressed with the women I met on the ground. Uh, they were uh, trying to get engaged in their, their own destiny. There there was some leadership coming through uh, at the governance levels. And from where I was in, in Helmand province, talking to many of the women on the ground, they, they didn't want NATO to be there specifically. They didn't want the Taliban. They actually just wanted to be left um, within their own communities to get on and thrive in their own um, provincial environments. That was the impression I got. Very strong women that I spoke to.
0: And during that time, I presume they got that glimpse of hope. Things started to, to evolve for them. Uh, we now hear that only recently a UN delegation has come back from Af- Afghanistan. They've been talking to the Taliban. They're saying that they actually are optimistic about women regaining the, the rights that they've lost. Um, what do you think the British government should be doing?
4: I wouldn't talk from a, a British government perspective. Um, that's, that's not my area specifically. What I would say is that certainly from an International Rescue Committee perspective, they're on their emergency watch list. Afghanistan is now third behind Ethiopia and Somalia in their top 10 to watch for um, de- degrading into serious um, uh, humanitarian crisis. Uh, the situation on the ground is incredibly serious. and. Uh, there are certainly areas that need to be addressed urgently and one of those is specifically access to humanitarian aid and assistance i think the most sad comment recently from one of my um, membership networks said that the country is literally dying um that there is a sense that there is no hope um, and that's 41 million people Um, that uh, that she described as being held to hostage uh, by the Taliban and they are still pulling the strings of the international community and that they desperately need help.
0: Would you like to go back to Afghanistan?
4: I spoke to um, a fantastic woman I've been working with recently who will and intends to go back. And I said that my wish for her is to be able to go back with my daughter and do a visit to Kabul and, and some of the beautiful provinces that exist there and be able to, to see it and experience it myself without being in uniform and without um, having to, to worry about the implications and not being under the rule of the Taliban, frankly.
0: Colonel Rosie Stone, I hope that wish comes true. Thank you very much for your time. And you can hear more from Colonel Rosie Stone, Shukriya Barakzai, and Lady Richards in a special edition of SITREP wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Professor Mike Clark, how realistic is that dream that Colonel Stone spoke about there?
2: Well, I think they might be pushing against the weight of history. I mean, there have been at least three times in Afghanistan's history where they've tried to modernise in the in the 1880s, uh, the 1920s. And again, in 1978, when Marxist-Leninist government tried to take over and each time they've tried to modernize the whole of society and every time they came up almost immediately against the problem of women's rights in society and the pushback against educating women and giving women uh, common normal rights so there is a i think a, a social dynamic there which modern afghanistan is also up against And, you know, you have to say, when people like uh, Lady Richards and Colonel Stone are trying to work from the outside, you're back in that situation in a way where all you can do is offer a prayer for the weak and a cheer for the brave. But the point is that in modern society, the the, the element of hope might be that these people in, in Afghanistan, these brave women who are in a position of weakness, but my goodness, they're brave, they do have globalized world to work with they've got the society of the internet uh, afghanistan can't cut it off cut itself off the way it used to be able to and so maybe that's an element of hope for the future
0: mike stay with us news discussions and
1: analysis
0: this is Zitrap. first the uk then germany and now the us have all pledged to send tanks to ukraine
3: couldn't expected europe and the united states to weaken our resolve he expected our support for Ukraine to crumble with time. He was wrong. We are united.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden confirmed yesterday that they'd send 31 Abrams tanks after Germany promised 14 of its leopards. And there could be more after it gave its permission for other countries to send their German-made tanks. But this week, as well as the war, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has also had to do battle with his own domestic politics. Professor Michael Clarke, a top advisor, four deputy ministers, including the deputy defence minister and five regional governors gone. Why the shakeup? What's going on?
2: Well, it was unavoidable um, because there's a fair amount of corruption connected to all of the money that's going into Ukraine. And remember that uh, Zelensky was elected on the basis that the people had got fed up with. They say, well, how much worse could it be if we elected an actor? Why don't we have an actor, a comedian? How much worse can it be? Because of the corruption that had pervaded Ukraine, as with all post-Soviet societies. And of course, Zelensky has proved himself to be extremely ruthless um, because he has to maintain his credibility as an anti-corruption president, both internally and of course to his Western backers, And of course, in wartime, I think he's allowed to be ruthless. And indeed, he has been. He sacked a number of his personal friends and friends that helped him get to that position when he was a TV executive producer. He gets rid of them. uh, And I think this is important for him.
0: Well, let's bring in Dr. Marina Miran, a researcher in defense studies at King's College, London. Dr. Miran, good to speak to you. You'd think he'd have enough to deal with with the war. What does this say about President Zelensky's leadership, especially taking into account that he's getting billions of dollars in Kiev from Western aid?
6: Well, on the one hand, uh, President Zelensky obviously wanted to show that Ukraine can be trusted because, um, as Professor Clark has already pointed out, Ukraine has been plagued by corruption. And when Zelensky came to power in every single presidential decree, um, there was a mention of the need to fight corruption. And um, obviously, there have been attempts, unsuccessful attempts to do so throughout his rule. And now he has, in a sense, a war has given him um, a carte blanche to get rid of those who might be stealing money.
0: Yeah, let's talk a bit more about tanks. Mike, um, this is something when the UK pledged it would send Challenger 2s, that it was hoped uh, that there would be the start of a wider contribution from other countries. But time is of the essence, isn't it? President Zelensky says he needs them sooner rather than later. Is it too little, too late? And how long is it going to take?
2: Well, I think after Rammstein, we would say, well, it's better late than never. But believe me, it's very late because we're not just talking about getting the tanks there and training tank crews. I mean, uh, Ukrainian tank crews on the T-72s and so on. They'll be pretty quick to train. Normal training for a Challenger crew is 20 weeks. Now, you could probably reduce that to five or six weeks for existing tank crews. But that's not the point. The point is that to be used properly, these tanks have got to be put into armoured brigades where there are armored fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, tracked artillery or mobile artillery and air cover. Those armoured brigades will be very, very powerful and will make a difference. And we're talking there about 100 tanks in a brigade. And so the Ukrainians probably need somewhere between one and 200 tanks. But getting that brigade together and training it to operate together, that's the thing that takes the time. And I'd be surprised if the Ukrainians could have brigades like that ready before the spring when the Russians are believed to be delivering their big offensive.
0: Marina, Miran, we're already seeing Russia's response with numerous air raids taking place in Ukraine now. Um, Russia is seeing all of this as a blatant provocation. How dangerous a phase are we entering in this conflict in terms of how Russia might respond in and outside Ukraine?
6: Well, I think in Ukraine, um, the offensive operations will definitely intensify and we're seeing it to a certain degree around the Parisias, and we're, we're seeing action in Uhledar and obviously um, the Wagner group is trying to get to Bakhmut, which would be another kind of symbolic target for the Russians and this is underscored by the appointment of General Gerasimov to um, take over the entire operation and from the Russian perspective he's believed to be one of the best military planners And so they are putting out their best general to basically um, reverse the losses that Russia has suffered in, in the later months of its special military operation. So it is expected that the Russians, now knowing the timeline for the delivery of tanks, will try to use the small window of opportunity to reach their military objectives at all costs.
0: Dr. Marina Mirren, thank you very much for your time. Finally, what's it like serving on the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth? Well, this week, the first episode of a fly-on-the-wall documentary has been aired on the BBC, covering her first operational tour.
2: Hands to flying stations. Hands to flying stations. Approach runway is clear. Permission
3: to launch the jets. Launch the jets, 4
0: the program maker Chris Terrell was given extraordinary access to all elements of life on board the ship. He filmed it on his own and effectively became part of the crew. Claire Sadler has been speaking to him.
3: My background is, is an anthropologist, so I, I'm used to um, uh, immersing myself in, in, in communities and trying to tell their story through their eyes. That's my, my job as an anthropologist, and I've used that as a, that approach as a filmmaker as well. So I don't use a crew, I I do everything myself and work as a one-man band, and that helps me embed and it helps uh, that process of becoming accepted really by by a community, particularly a military community, and that's what I specialise in anyway. I've done a lot with the Navy, a lot with the Royal Marines in the past. So it's very important that I go in there on their terms, not my terms. I'm being allowed into privileged access into their world and I have to earn my place and I don't expect special treatment.
1: And these were really interesting times on board. Of course, uh, the war in Ukraine hadn't started, but did you witness international tensions?
3: Oh, yeah. When we got to the Eastern Mediterranean, um, we were engaged on something called Operation Shader. So our F-35s were flying into Syria and Iraq in support of ground troops still flushing out remnants of ISIS, so so it was operational deployment from that point of view, and they were fully armed with with missiles and bombs in case they were called in to to, to action. At the same time, there was an intense interest in our presence in the Eastern Mediterranean by the Russians, both the Russian uh, surface forces, uh, the, the subsurface, the submarines, and, and certainly the, their air force based in out of Syria.
2: This is coalition warship. Your actions appear to be threatening. Turn away immediately or I may... It's
3: my job to catch that drama, catch that tension, through not only tell a strategic story, but the experience of the young sailors who'd never faced this before, the young officers on the bridge. Officers of the watch, first time at sea, having to, having to deal with this sort of tension, it's extraordinary.
1: And you said, Chris, that none of us on board returned home the same person uh, who left. What did you mean by that?
3: I think any long deployment changes you because you, you're away for, six, in this case, seven, seven and a half months. You, you meet new people, you have lots of new experiences, you bond with to people, you, you're, you react to challenges in a particular way some good, some not so good. Um, it, it's a life-changing experience. And so you do come back slightly different. One of the most difficult experiences, and I've gone through this many, many times, is leaving a ship after a long deployment. It's very upsetting. It's very emotional. You know, I, I cry. Uh, I fully admit that. <laughs> um, it, it, it is Because you're missing a lifestyle, and you're missing your brothers and sisters, the people that you've come very dear to, you. and particularly to me, I think, because I, it's my job to get close to people, and I don't do that just in order to tell a story. I make great friends who will be lifelong friends, and so when you come come ashore, you, you miss those people.
0: Chris Terrell speaking to Claire Sadler, and you can see the warship tour of duty on BBC Two on Sunday nights at nine o'clock. Uh, Michael Clark, don't you have seen the first episode, haven't you? But fly on the wall documentaries will spend hours and hours filming, and obviously get all the most exciting bits into the final cut. How realistically do you think it portrays the real experience?
2: Oh, I thought it was very good, and I think Chris had done an extremely good job. You know, the the one thing that struck me most, I think, uh, you could talk about the characters that emerged in that first edition, but the thing that I remember most about it was the uh, young sailor saying that the flight deck's been closed to us for many, many days because of what was going on on the flight deck. And so this crew, the 700-odd crew... Have to stay below decks so for day and sure. night, day and night, constantly. And the thing that comes through from the, uh, the the documentary most, I think, is how crowded even a big ship is. Mm. And it made me think about something else. You know that this, the, the Prince of Wales and the Queen Elizabeth, both the carriers, are um, sixty five thousand tons. Now there are ships more than double that size sailing the ocean, the big super tankers and the big mace cargo ships. And those things are literally double, treble the size of the carrier. And some of them have got crews of 20 or 25. (laughs) But the carrier's got a crew of 700. Because when you're dealing with a warship, whether it's a big ship or a small warship, a warship is a very special sort of ship. That's the point. There's something very special about a warship because of what it does and what it's designed to do and what it's got to be prepared for.
0: Mike, thank you. And thank you to all of our guests. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts, where you'll also find that bonus episode. For now, though, from me, Kate Jabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.